Thank you very much, Dan. That's very nice. At Columbia University, Jeffrey Sachs is director of the Earth Institute, which deals with the issues of climate, environmental management, conservation, public health, and economic development from a multidisciplinary perspective. He's also special advisor to the UN Secretary General Kofi Annan and director of the United Nations Millennium Project, which is working to reduce extreme poverty, disease, and hunger by the year 2015. Before moving to New York, Professor Sachs had taught for more than 20 years at Harvard University, where he had gone to college and earned his PhD before that. He's the author of more than 200 articles and many books. Time Magazine has repeatedly named Jeffrey Sachs as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. And the New York Times has referred to him as, and I quote, probably the most important economist in the world. He's been a principal advisor to presidents and prime ministers in Eastern Europe, Latin America, Russia, Asia, and Africa. In the foreword to his book, The End of Poverty, Bono writes that his autograph, that is Jeffrey Sachs, in the sweep of history will be far more valuable than his own. It's not hard to understand why Professor Sachs is so famous. He challenges the conventional wisdom and punctures the myths that too often justify inaction. He advises that we make differential diagnoses, look at problems keeping in mind that politics, the economy, social and environmental systems are interconnected, and it's not enough to fix one if in doing so you create shutdown and fatal collapse in all of the others. In, strip away, in stripping away the myths that surround poverty and often fuel what he argues is a misplaced sense that there's nothing that we can do. Professor Sachs has drawn the world's attention to the options we really face and the priorities that we're actually choosing and invites us to think on both moral and practical terms if those are truly the priorities we want to invest in. Douglas North won the Nobel Prize a few years ago, and he explains that economic change is primarily a product of the beliefs and the ideas that underpin the institutions that create incentives in our time. And he attributes change primarily to entrepreneurs who push ideas and change the way we think about the world. In our age, there's no doubt Jeffrey Sachs is one of the most important entrepreneurs of ideas changing our future. And I'm very proud to have him here today at Ohio State University. Wow, what a fantastic introduction. But I still have to advise you, I'd still bet on Bono's signature anytime, <laughs> autograph anytime. I once had an incredible pleasure to, uh, I mean, pleasure, honor, uh, moving uh, experience to go to visit Pope John Paul with Bono. It's an unusual, uh, very lucky thing. And we visited the Pope in the Castel Gandolfo, which is the summer residence. And we went out the back door and got into a van. And uh, the van pulled out, and then there were hundreds of people running after the van. I, 
you know, like in the old Beatles movies. And I turned to Bono and I said, you know, Bono, they always do that for macroeconomists. Uh, and uh, he didn't believe me. <laughs> um, what a pleasure to be here and what a pleasure also to be a part of the first year experience program because I know a lot of you are incoming students and you have uh, four great years ahead and I think four years that are going to be real important for your lives and I believe can be really important for the planet also uh, for our society because the main message that I have today is that we all need to be involved indeed in changing directions that we're on right now. I wish I could say to you that this was a, a safe and sure time in the world, but I think you know better than that. It's actually a pretty dangerous time. We have war raging. Uh, we have, uh, as I'll talk about in a moment, millions of people dying of poverty every year. People that we don't even know and recognize are suffering the way that they are because they're nameless and voiceless to us, though the suffering is enormous. And we have a pretty uh, advanced state of assault on the physical planet itself, on the ecosystems, climate change, the other great stresses, not through intentional desire to undermine our well-being and the planet's well-being, but almost as a side effect of our economic civilization and choices that we have or haven't made. So we have some very big, big challenges ahead. I personally find it the most amazing thing that even the biggest challenges, we don't even know, it seems, that how big they are because we're spending most of our time on non-challenges. I would put the war on terror somewhere around 38th on the list. Not that there aren't issues there, but heading it as a war, I think, is surely not going to solve the problem anyway. And it also is really distracting us from a bigger understanding of the challenges of a very crowded planet, a planet that's so crowded that we're coming into direct conflict with each other in very horrible ways and a planet that has greater divisions between the richest and the poorest of any time in history, mainly because the, riches are, the, the rich are richer than at any time in history, and a lot of the poor are trapped in extreme poverty, and a planet that is going to have to face up to geophysical and biophysical realities that we haven't even acknowledged to be uh, realities yet, much less begun to do something about them. So we got to get our, our heads on straight, and um, I hope that today I can make a little contribution to thinking about at least part of this puzzle. The part that I want to think about is this challenge of the poorest of the poor on the planet. And I'm putting forward a proposition. The proposition is that we, and in real chronological terms, I mean you, are the generation that can end extreme poverty on the planet. And I'm also implying, I'll be explicit about it, I guess, something even more, you better do it. 
because the ability to do something so wonderful and then not doing it is also a danger. Leaving people to die when we can save them, leaving people to suffer when there's something that can be done is really dangerous. It's uh, not just devastating for those people, but it's dangerous for us as well. So I believe that in moral terms, yes, of course, uh, we should be doing more, but in practical terms, we better be doing more as well. So I want to talk about the end of poverty, but I want to be clear right at the beginning what I'm really talking about. I'm talking about a certain kind of poverty that if you haven't seen it, it's a little hard to understand. And I know that because I didn't get it for a long time until I began working about a dozen years ago in some of the poorest places in the world. For 25 years, I've worked in developing countries, but I'm talking about a kind of poverty that's even a step beyond what you would find in essentially all of Mexico or Brazil, and even though there are pockets of extreme poverty even in those countries. The kind of poverty that I'm talking about when I speak of extreme poverty is poverty that kills. It's poverty that is so extreme that people can't meet their most basic needs. And by basic needs, I mean needs really basic. Enough food to eat, enough nutritional content in that food, water that is safe enough to drink, and the basic preventions and, if necessary, curative actions to fight against potentially deadly diseases. Extreme poverty means you can't meet that set of criteria. Not enough food, lack of access to safe drinking water, lack of access to basic health needs. Now, what do we know about it, about that kind of poverty? I'm going to show you some numbers, but then I'm going to show you the faces of extreme poverty. This is impossible for you to see, but I will tell you uh, what it shows, because all you really need is to see a little bit of uh, the basics. This set of bars is the amount of extreme poverty in each region of the world. The bigger the bar, the more poverty as a share of the population, and that top group is Africa. And the top bar is 1990, and the bottom bar, the dark blue one, is the year 2001. And what you probably can't see, but if you were a little closer, would see, is that the bottom bar is even farther out. There's more extreme poverty as a share of the population in sub-Saharan Africa currently than there was 15, 20, 25 years ago. And what this graph shows about half of Africa is living in extreme poverty. Now, the next one down is South Asia. That's mainly India, a billion people in India, but also including Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal, Sri Lanka. And it's a smaller proportion and a falling proportion, very important, the proportion of people in extreme poverty in virtually every part of the world except for Africa is falling, and now falling pretty quickly. It's not impossible to end extreme poverty. It's happening, in fact, in most places in the world. 
So we have to understand, well, where isn't it happening? Why isn't it happening in some places if it is happening in most places? So in India, probably 25 years ago, I don't know if this is, I'd rather walk around if it's at all mobile. Nope, doesn't go. Okay. In, in India about 25 years ago, half the population was in extreme poverty. Now it's closer to about 20%. So that's a big progress. In China, it was close to 50%. Now it's down to about 10%. That's what this, uh, yeah, that's what this bar shows, East Asia. That's mainly China, actually, 1.3 billion people. And it shows that the rate of extreme poverty went from a third in 1990 down to a sixth in the year 2001. So the first point to take is Africa is different in its recent experience. It's got the most extreme poverty and it's not going down. Whereas in Asia, where there were the largest numbers of extremely poor people, because Asia has, by the way, almost two-thirds of the world's population, the share of the population and the numbers in extreme poverty are going down sharply. Great news. The boom in China, the boom in India, by the way, even with the short-term dislocations that it might cause is great news for the planet. The amount of sufferings going down, the chance for peaceful relations between the U.S. and Asia dramatically increases because of this kind of economic progress, if we're smart about it. Not automatically, but if we're smart about it. Because the suffering and the anguish and the fear factor really can go down a lot. So all of this is to say that Africa is the epicenter of the unmet challenge. I'd also say from a scholarly or intellectual point of view, it's also the puzzle. Why in Africa are the rates so high and not going down, whereas in other parts of the world they are much lower and going down? I'm going to give you my own sense of the answer. The fact that many of my colleagues don't believe what I'm about to tell you is okay because we can give them time to catch up. That's how I figure it. I'll, I'll, I'll suggest what some other people think just a little bit. I won't give them equal time. Uh, but I will give them uh, at least the benefit of mentoring, mentioning their flawed arguments. Now. Let me show you the faces of extreme poverty. Do you know that 11 million children will die this year because their families were too poor to keep them alive? That's World War numbers. 11 million. 25, 30,000 every day, day in, day out. Are we focusing on that problem as if it's a 25,000 per day crisis? Of course not. We're not even aware of it. Children are dying as the ones in this picture of infectious diseases that are controllable but are not being controlled. 
of hunger that could be solved but is not being solved, of waterborne diseases carried by unsafe drinking water. This is a picture taken in Zamba Central Hospital in southern Malawi earlier this year. Children lined up one next to the other suffering from malaria, many of them dying of the disease. Malaria is an infection transmitted by mosquito bites. It is fatal if untreated, and yet it is 100% treatable if you get the medicine in time within the first few hours of clinical symptoms. Two million children or more will die of this disease because they can't get to what costs one dollar for the treatment dose. Two million children. That's a child in coma. Cerebral malaria. It's a child that did not have the benefit of the most basic protection, a bed net to keep the mosquito away, or a dollar medicine in time. The hospitals are overflowing. What do you think about going to a hospital and being put in a bed literally head to foot with a stranger suffering from some other ailment? You go in with malaria and you share a bed with someone with AIDS or someone with tuberculosis. Oh, gosh, it's hard to see. In the picture, which you can't see, down in the corner is a yellow water bottle. You have to bring your own water to many of the clinics in Africa because there's no running water, even in a hospital. Now, we've known for 150 years you can't have health care without hand washing, and you need running water for that, and we don't have it. These are men digging a, uh, amazingly, in the middle of a dry riverbed, a riverbed that's gone dry in a village in northern Ethiopia. It's a combination of climate change and population stress so that the river doesn't even reach this community anymore, even though it used to be a year-round river. So I had never seen this site until a couple of years ago, digging in a dry riverbed to get to the water table below. That's another sign of desperation, of extreme poverty. This is the incredible United Nations map of countries needing emergency food aid in Africa. You might as well show the ones that don't need it. They're just a few. This is a hungry continent. Okay. Now, that's the plight. What's the solution? Here, in my view, is where good science and universities need to come into the act. It's easy enough if you pay attention to look at the challenge. I'm afraid too many people have tuned out. They may know about it, but they don't even want to look at those pictures. They're not very pleasant. But what's key is to find solutions, solutions that will work, solutions that are practical, Solutions that are feasible, 
solutions that are scalable, in other words, that can address the scale of the challenge, solutions that are sustainable, both in the environmental sense that they won't undo the environment and in the common sense meaning of the term, that they won't just be a Band-Aid one day and by the next you're back to where you were before. Now what I think good analysis does is try to understand these puzzles. Economic development, if I could give a plug, is a great field because you're looking at really important issues and they're tremendously challenging intellectually. Everybody has ideas, but not so many people actually know anything about it. And there's a lot more punditry than there is wisdom about these issues. Unfortunately, much of what gets said, perhaps most, is by people that have actually never even been to a village. But they're just making assumptions and not bringing to bear real knowledge. In my view, and my experience, getting out of extreme poverty is the normal state of affairs for the world, not the exception. That's why I'm an optimist. Given the technologies that we have for meeting basic needs, whether it's water, food, health, we have very powerful technologies. So getting out of extreme poverty is kind of the normal state of affairs should be, and indeed most of the world is on its way to do that. And the puzzle is why some places get trapped. What's the difference of those places and the places that have escaped from poverty? Now a lot is said about that. Oh, the places still in poverty are corrupt. Often said by people who are true experts in corruption, I can tell you. I often say, yes, there is corruption. And, and not just in Washington, uh, also in Africa. But it actually is not really a very accurate view because places that have got out of poverty have been awfully corrupt, even more corrupt than the places still stuck in poverty. People say, well, it's democracy. You know, you have to have democracy. I'm a small d Democrat, I believe in democracy. But I also know that that's actually not been the definitive explanation of who's in poverty and who isn't. I'm working with lots of democratically elected governments in Africa, full democracies, absolutely stuck in extreme poverty. Madagascar, Mozambique, Tanzania, Mali, Senegal, really tough. Multi-party democracies, really tough. And a lot of places that have gotten out of poverty are not multi-party democracies. Well, some people say you have to be authoritarian to get out. The opposite. That's also false. Because many democracies have found their way out of extreme poverty as well. Lots of things are said about a lot of things that just aren't so, basically. And that's why I think everything has to be tested against rigorous thinking empirical evidence, on-the-ground practicality. Now, to my view, rather than what is almost a pastime in rich countries, and that's blaming the poor, we ought to understand their structural conditions better than we do. 
And in my opinion, a lot of the African crisis comes from the fact that Africa really has it tough, tougher than other parts of the world, especially the confluence of difficulties. Three kinds of difficulties seem to me to loom large when I try to make the differential diagnosis, why is Africa in extreme poverty, but India's on its way out, China's on its way out. And I remember that when I was starting out as a student in this field, India was still considered, well, maybe basket case. Even in the 1970s, people said, oh, India, you know, no way out of its chronic famines. So what is it that made a difference? In my view, three things account for a huge part of the difference. First, the rest of the world grows more food more productively than Africa. So Africa has been trapped in a hunger crisis related to its very low productivity food production. And since most of the poor are farmers in rural areas, and actually, surprisingly, maybe a little bit paradoxically, most of the hungry are farmers. Because you think, well, farmers, they'd have enough to eat. It's got to be people that aren't farmers. But actually, it's farmers that don't even grow enough to feed their families or suffer droughts and crop failures every three or four years. That's where the big hunger is, rural poverty in agricultural settings. Second is the disease burden is much, much higher in Africa than elsewhere. And I think that this, too, partly it's caused by poverty, but it's also partly a reflection of the difficult biophysical environment, especially malaria, which has burdened Africa uniquely, essentially from time immemorial. And there's a lot of even genetic evidence of that fact because of the pressures of malaria on the African population uniquely in the world. And that has to do with ecology more than lack of attention or lack of interest. So there's a health crisis. And third, there is what I call a connectivity crisis or economic isolation, to be more prosaic about it. African villages these days often don't have a paved road, often don't even have one truck very rarely are connected to a power grid, so there's no electricity. Amazingly now, a big change, one of the positives, is that even in those places, people may not have a single phone, but the cell phone still works because the towers are up. But people don't have the connectivity, though that's coming. So I believe that the practical differences, let me run through them quickly, can be identified. And once you do that kind of differential diagnosis, then you're also led to practical solutions. And as you may already have guessed, the word practical is my favorite word in the lexicon. Because if it's only theoretical, it's great for the journal, but it will not solve the problem. And I think we have a lot of problem-solving tools at hand. So let me say a word about what's called the Green Revolution. This was the breakthrough in agriculture that raised the productivity of farmers in the last 50 years. And to put it quantitatively, most farmers in developing countries went from an average 
food yield of cereal grains, whether it's rice, wheat, or maize, or sorghum and millet, from something like one ton per hectare, a hectare being about two and a half acres, one metric ton per hectare of food yield to about three tons or even higher in recent years. And this was done mainly by improved seed varieties that reprogrammed the plants to put their photosynthetic output into the seeds that we eat, not into the stalks and the leaves and so on, and then combined that improved seed with fertilizer and irrigation. So you got a technological package, high-yield seeds combined with irrigation, combined with fertilizer, that tripled or more the food yields. That did not happen in Africa yet. That's really important to understand. Now, this shows food output per person, and the top line is for East Asia, and the bottom line is for Africa. That's the difference. One is rising over the last 40 years, and the other is falling. Africa has less food today per person than it used to. East Asia, South Asia, Latin America, the world on average has more food per person. That's a big gap. Why did that happen? Well, you really can't see that, and I apologize. But if you could see it, this is the time series of, in other words, the year-by-year -year record of cereal yields per hectare. And in Africa, it's a flat line. Just like being hooked up to the EKG, you do not want to have a flat line. There was no growth in yields. This line, that's East Asia. East Asia went from one ton per hectare to four and a half tons per hectare. Plenty of food, but even as important, you need fewer farmers now. The rest can be in cities, in industry, and in services because fewer people are needed to grow the food for the country, to put it in simple terms. So higher food pr productivity, food security, and a shift of the population to urban-based manufacturing and services. Didn't happen in Africa. But look, here's a very important point. Here's a collection of data by Dr. Johan Ruckstrom of the Stockholm Environment Institute. And he went out to the fields to see what the farmers were actually getting in nine countries. And he found that they were getting about one-half ton per hectare of cereal grains in their harvest. But here's what the research stations were achieving. Four, five, six tons per hectare. The difference is those research stations were using high-yield seeds, they were using water management techniques. They were using fertilizer. Now, the, the key to understand is that the difference of using no inputs and using those packaged inputs is only $20 to $30 per person to enable poor people to use the input package. The difference is if you're stuck with no money at all, you can't get started. You're not creditworthy, you can't get the loans, and so you're trapped in poverty. And in other parts of the world, 
They were helped. We used to give a lot of aid to India so that their farmers could use fertilizer at the beginning. Now they grew out of that. They don't need our aid because India is developing on its own. But we helped them get started. My argument is it's time for us to help Africa get started in this. Now it's more challenging because Africa doesn't have the benefit of irrigation the same way. We're going to have to find solutions that fit the local conditions. For those of you who are studying agronomic science here or thinking about it, there's lots of good work to do. There are some known techniques that will work, but there are better ones for you to develop. We have good tools, but not perfect tools. High drought-resistant seeds may be coming on the agenda now through agrobiotechnology. Monsanto has some very exciting possibilities. Better management of rainwater is another way to use the water more effectively. Drip irrigation and so on. But if you're stuck in extreme poverty, you can't get started. So you need help to get underway. Same deal with health. The difference of dying and staying alive is a pretty small difference financially. This is a map that shows where the ecology leads to a high intensity of malaria. Africa's got it by far the worst. It's because of its temperature, its rainfall, and even the specific species of Anopheles mosquitoes that transmit the malaria. Because Africa's Anopheles species are human biters, whereas in other parts of the world, the mosquitoes like to bite cows at least as much. Believe me, it's better to live in a place where your mosquito neighbors like to bite cows because that breaks the human transmission of malaria. In India, the dominant species in rural areas is called Anopheles coulisophaces. Anopheles is the genus, coulisophaces is the species. About 70% of the bite of that kind of Anopheles mosquito, which transmits malaria, is on cattle, only 30% on humans. In Africa, it's Anopheles gambi. And Anopheles gambi is 100% human biting. Think about the probability of two human bites in a row in these two places. In Africa, it's the probability of one. In India, it's a probability of 0.3 times 0.3, or 0.09. The chance of two consecutive human bites, which you need to transmit the disease, is 10 times greater in Africa than in India. Everything else, roughly the same. That's essentially why Africa's malaria burden is intrinsically so much higher than the rest of the world. Well, there's a lot of other ugly diseases also that have a strong ecological component. Hookworm, Ascaris, Schistosomiasis, Trichuris, Trachoma, Lymphatic Filariasis, Onchocerciasis, Trypanosomiasis, Dracunculiasis. My advice to you is don't get them. If you do get them, by the way, for many of the worm infections on this list, it's three cent dose to get dewormed. But many children in Africa are living with three or four or five of these parasites. It's called being polyparasitized. And they are. And it's a disaster. You can't learn. You have nutritional deficiencies because worms also eat your food, but from the inside. 
and it wouldn't take much to solve this problem, but you need health workers and you need the logistics chain of the medicines. And it's not reaching the poorest of the poor. Connectivity. I don't know if you can see this, but this is the rail network of India built by the British Raj, by the British Empire to a large extent. This is the rail network in Africa. It is not a network. It's like having a phone that's not plugged in or a cell phone that doesn't connect to any network. You, what you have in Africa is rail lines to the gold mine or to the diamond mine, not between cities. Transport is extremely costly. But, you know, we figured out how to build roads, even how to extend rail, and how to make the Internet work. Another big problem, hard to see, but Africa doesn't yet have an underwater cable that goes up the east coast of Africa. It wouldn't cost very much to have it if our world were smart. We'd invest so that Africa could have low-cost Internet connection. But it's taken a long time. There have been, I've been to dozens of conferences on the, quote, digital divide, but I've yet to see one of them do something practical. I go because it's kind of part of my job, but it's really depressing because somehow officialdom has not gotten very practical. How about laying that underwater cable up the east coast of Africa? Indeed, there's a plan that was developed at Carnegie Mellon University, $1 billion. $1 billion would lay fiber optic cable across all of Africa, connecting all the main cities doesn't exist yet. Billion dollars is, I have to tell you, from a macroeconomist point of view, small change. I'll tell you how small change in a little while. So what can you do about these things? When we thought about it for the Secretary General of the UN, we said, well, these are all pretty practical problems. Growing more food, preventing and fighting disease, establishing connectivity. And we adopted a strategy which we call Millennium Villages. And the idea is to bring a little bit of help to these villages so they can get started on their own. And it is to be a science-based approach, very transparent, very carefully managed and measured, where you help make investments in the village so the villagers gain productivity, improve their health, have their children in school, and then can develop livelihoods for the long term, rather than being hungry and sick. And this is a picture of a town meeting in Kenya and a village meeting outdoors in a magnificent canyon in Ethiopia. And we now have started these Millennium Villages in 10 countries in Africa, and soon it will be probably 15 to 20. And you look for agricultural solutions. This is an example of using an agroforestry system to help replenish soil nitrogen in western Kenya. Simple things like rock buns or gabions, which change the direction of the water flow so that you don't get soil erosion or you collect rainwater. This is me taking a maiden voyage on a treadle pump. It's a way for about 45 bucks to be able to collect rainwater in a little 
pond, little pond or a little hole that the farmer digs on the land. And then if the rains fail, you use the pump for what's called supplemental irrigation. You don't have enough rain, uh, you don't have a river for real irrigation, but if you have a dry spell of 10 days, the crop would die in many cases, but you can use that collected water in a tarp and treadle pump it onto your half, ha half hectare of farmland. And what we found is you can double, triple, quadruple the farm yields even in a three-month period. One growing season can take a community from extreme hunger to a bumper crop, literally. Of course, you need the rains not to fail on you. We've had some good luck, but we've seen crop yields go up by six times in one planting season from extreme hunger to income generation for the farm households. Then you can introduce school feeding programs using the locally produced food, for example, which is what is being shown here in the village in Kenya. The community asked us for a clinic. Help us have a clinic. They said, look, just give us the cement and the wiring and the corrugated roof will do the rest. 3,000 bucks. And the community, 3,000 bucks. And the community in eight weeks put up a clinic which sees 200 people every day for the last two years. Saving lives, it's unbelievable, 3,000 bucks. And most of the places in Africa do not even have a clinic locally available. Now, we call it the big six because this can be accomplished in just a year. Growing more food, controlling malaria because that's a real no-brainer. Anti-malaria bed nets combined with medicines right in the village and community health workers trained to get the medicines out can bring down this burden of this killer disease monumentally, maybe by 80 or 90 percent within a few months. Having a clinic, training community health workers, providing safe water points through a well, a bore well that's dug, or by putting cement, a cement base, at a spring to protect the spring from local pollution and local runoff and so on. So protected springs to keep the water clean. It's very low cost. Providing school feeding programs so the children go to school. All of this is one year's work. Now imagine with a little bit of help over a five-year period, not only to grow more food, but to help make a transition on some of the land to cash crops, for example, and putting up a satellite dish. Now, it would be better if there's fiber cable extended throughout the continent and then using local wireless for the last mile. But even without local wireless and a fiber platform, you can still put up a VSAT dish and at a few bucks per person in the village have internet connectivity available. And we're doing that, and it can make a world of difference in many, many ways. These are things that can be done in short order if we care to do them. Let me tell you very quickly, because we don't have time for, unfortunately, a long discussion, 
I see farmers in many parts of the world making the transformation to cash-earning crops. These are pictures from a cooperative in Guatemala. It's not only Africa. This is in the lowlands of eastern Guatemala in a Mayan community called the Chorti, which now has farm cooperatives. I'm sorry, th actually, this is from uh, near Guatemala City. We're trying to introduce this in, in the eastern lowlands. But in near Guatemala City, several thousand farm households joined together. They were helped to create a farm cooperative. Now they're selling fresh produce to U.S. supermarkets. And it's a wonderful logistics system. And you have several hundred women actually washing string beans, packaging them, putting them in boxes. And it's always amazing to see because the boxes are for a San Francisco supermarket with the price tag already on it. All this global logistics has been figured out. But you need a little bit of organization locally to make it possible. In this community, these peasant families, in essence, smallholder families, have seen a five-fold increase of their income in the last five years as a result of joining the global supply chain. One more thing is needed, and that is in the poorest parts of the world, population tends to be running out of control. And the main reason is that very poor families, despite their poverty, have six or seven children on average. This is measured by what's called the total fertility rate. That's the average number of children that a woman would have given uh, the age-specific fertility rates in the population. And often it's six or seven children and maybe five of those children will survive, or maybe four, half of them girls. So each mother will be raising two daughters for the next generation. That means the population's doubling every generation. That's very hard to keep ahead of that curve, I can tell you, as a development economist. It's hard to keep ahead of a doubling of population every generation. You run out of land and carrying capacity, you get big environmental stress, and these families cannot afford to educate six children. They can't afford to provide the parental investments in each of those children, so maybe only the elder son gets the education. So a reduction of fertility rates through family planning and contraception is extremely important and has been a key part of successful economic development everywhere. Now, doesn't cost a lot. We figure that the outside world ought to be providing something like $70 per person per year over a few years to make the transition out of extreme poverty. And that's shown in this graph. Health requires maybe 30 bucks. Infrastructure, maybe 10 bucks per person. Water, maybe $9 per person, and so on. But the lower bars are what's actually provided by international help right now. It's a tiny, tiny fraction of what would actually do the trick. We're letting people die. It's a horrible truth. We're letting millions of people die. We don't know it. We don't mean to be doing it. We have a pretty sophisticated menu of excuses oh, it's all their problem, it's their corruption, it's their wars, and so forth. It's not true. 
I said what the other side would say. That's what they say. All right? It's not true. Most of these places are at peace. Many of them are democracies. Many of them have corruption levels less than the success stories in places that are lucky enough not to have so much malaria or so much irrigation or to be at coasts so the transport conditions are not so bad. These are biophysical and geographical problems to an important extent, but they have practical solutions. But we're just not providing those solutions. Here's what we are doing. This is two bars. You can only see one of them, but that's the point. This is the military budget this year, $550 billion. This is the aid to Africa. Every day, we're spending $1.5 billion on the military. Let me tell you what that could do. Our estimate is that there are 300 million sleeping sites in Africa in malaria zones, 300 million. You go into a hut, the children sleep here, the older child sleeps here, the parents sleep here. You add them up, it's about 300 million. Each bed net costs five bucks and lasts five years. If you major in macroeconomics, you will become a specialist in multiplication. So 300 million times five, $1.5 billion. $550 billion a year, and then you can use the other key macroeconomic skill, long division, divided by 365 days. That's $1.5 billion a day. Do you know one day's Pentagon spending would pay for all of the bed nets for all of Africa for five years? Are we really getting our security dollar? Are we really doing what we ought to be doing? I think you'll agree with me. We got some hard thinking and some acting and some solutions ahead. And I know that you're going to be the ones providing them. Thank you so much. got time, and uh, Professor Sachs has agreed to take questions. There's a microphone here and one just behind the middle break, so please come up and introduce yourself and ask a question, and keep it to a question because our time is limited, and I'll have to be a heavy if we get long speeches. I want to thank you for giving us a very good insight into the problem. My question for you is one area that you did not cover, and that is the use of DDT or other insecticides to help to control malaria. Yeah, thanks. So DDT, as uh, people know, is a 
controversial pesticide. It's called a persistent organic pesticide because it is an organic pesticide that uh, persists in the environment, and it was deemed uh, to be environmentally unsafe decades ago. And as a result, in part, its use as an anti-malaria spray within houses was ended in many places. This was a mistake. DDT is not safe if you apply it in large amounts out in the open fields for agriculture. But when used inside huts to repel mosquitoes from staying and sleeping on the wall, which is where they do, it is effective in the fight against malaria. Turns out it's a little more costly than bed nets, and it's harder to use because if you don't do a good job spraying, actually, you leave places where the mosquitoes can still alight, uh, where they can still transmit infection, and you need a lot of trained and skilled people and a lot of management, whereas a bed net, the people have it and they're protected for years, and it's much lower, co or lower cost, at least. So we recommend DDT in certain ecological settings, what are called endemic, uh, epidemic areas as opposed to holoendemic areas. It is a tool in the arsenal in the fight against malaria. It's no magic bullet. The fight against malaria requires several different, several different uh, instruments, and, and DDT is, uh, is one of them. Yes, uh, sticking around with the same uh, subject with malaria, why is there no um, vaccine against malaria up to these uh, days? Yeah, so the vaccines that we have are vaccines against viruses and against bacteria. Unicellular uh, 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 bacteria with, uh, that are fairly simple organisms compared to the pathogen which causes malaria, which is a protozoan. Now, protozoan is a much more complicated organism, and it happens to be a very tricky organism. It changes its surface proteins to evade the immune system. It's hard to track down a vaccine. And so, essentially, we don't have a malaria vaccine for two reasons. One is it's much harder than the kinds of vaccines we do have. And second, we haven't invested up to the level to compensate for that added difficulty because we generally don't invest when it's diseases of poor people. Rather, we invest when it's diseases of rich people. That's how the markets work. And the markets work pretty well, except if you happen to be very poor, then the markets are trained to ignore you. And so we need to put our thumb on the scale and say, look, the markets won't solve that problem, so we have to use the public sector or foundations, philanthropies, to add to the research budget. And that's what the Gates Foundation is trying to do right now. It's trying to generate a malaria vaccine. There are a couple of promising leads right now, one that the GlaxoSmithKline company has and another uh, that uh, a, uh, a researcher uh, in a company named Scenaria has. But still, we're years away, and, and we're waiting to see whether those two solutions will work. Good afternoon, sir. My name is Brian Grago. Uh, those are excellent points that you brought up regarding the uh, U.S. Uh, budget numbers. But the U.S. can't carry the entire burden for all these problems alone. And 
When I went to visit the UN a few years ago, they said that the US currently supplies 51% of the United Nations budget out of the 120 countries that are members of it, and less than half of those countries have paid their dues at that time. I just want to know what your proposal and plan were for gaining global support beyond just the US for solving yep. these problems. The, the, uh, thanks for that. Uh, the, the, the numbers that are needed are um, not to go through the UN, first of all. The UN budget is a pretty small number, actually. That's just the budget for the UN agencies. The kind of help that's needed, by and large, would not go through the UN. It would go, say, from the US government to these kinds of communities that I uh, just showed through community-based development programs. The amount that would be needed is really small relative to our giant economy. The estimate is that if the rich world put in seven-tenths of one percent, seven-tenths of one percent of our income, that would do it. That would give, since the rich world has a combined GNP of about $35 trillion every year, that would be about uh, $200 uh, uh, $240 billion a year compared to maybe for Africa right now $25 billion a year and for total aid not to throw around a lot of numbers each of which needs a definition but something close to $90 billion a year. If we did the 0 0.7 which was promised by the rich countries we'd have at least an extra $120 billion a year, that would be more than enough to take on AIDS, TB, malaria, the Green Revolution, safe drinking water. You could really solve the problems. So the point is what's needed is less than 1% of the income of the rich world. 1%. Now, the United States, as a share of our income, actually gives the lowest level of aid of any country in the world any donor country, I should say. Many countries give zero because they're not donor countries, but of the high-income countries, the U.S. gives the least. It's weird. In absolute numbers, we give the most because we're the biggest economy. We got the most people by far, and we're rich in per-person terms. But as a share of our income, we give the least. It's about 0.2 of 1% right now. Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Netherlands, Luxembourg are at the top. They give 0.7 or higher of their income. We spend about 4 to 5% of our income on the military right now. My argument is that's not going to get us the security we need that way. So if we took some of that and viewed it as security spending and viewed our help for the poor as something to make a safer world, we do better even in pure security terms. Not to mention all of the other benefits that one would have. Safer in terms of certainly disease transmission, safer in terms of goodwill, our humanity, our values, and for those people, saving millions of lives every year. So my the point is that the U.S. and the others should all do the same burden relative to their income, about 0.7 of 1%. And if we did that, we'd really be able to solve this problem definitively. I think we spend a lot of time worrying about a small number 
and we don't spend much time, unfortunately, worrying about a big number like $550 billion for the military or even the nearly $300 billion a year of tax cuts, mainly for very wealthy people in this country. So I don't think we got the balance right in how we're making our choices, and I think we're seeing it in the lack of safety that we have in the country. Um, oh, yeah. um, this kind of complements what you are just talking about. You're talking about the giving on a large scale. Are there any recommendations of legitimate organizations that you could recommend for the individual to give? Because, you know, the spending of the country is kind of just a bigger picture of what Absolutely. each individual person's bank book looks like. So, so what can people do? I do believe everybody needs to do something. I'm a professor. I'm giving you a homework assignment. First, the big homework assignment is to end extreme poverty by 2025. All right? But it's open book, and you can work in groups. Okay? <laughs> the midterm is to achieve the Millennium Development Goals by 2015. We can do that. That's the big picture. Now, what about your daily homework assignment? Do something. One thing you could do, you could stand up Sunday, October 15th. The One campaign is having a public gathering about these issues. That's to show our politicians that Americans care. It's to show each other that we care. Uh, it's uh, at the Lifestyle Communities Pavilion, 1 p.m. to 4 p.m., that's really worthwhile to get involved, to get involved politically. I want people to get involved practically also. We started an organization called Millennium Promise, millenniumpromise.org, so that everyone could give 10 bucks to buy the bed net, get it shipped, uh, and get the local community to know how to use it. And that's one thing that I think everyone can do, 10 bucks. Student groups can say, come on, let's get everybody. I challenged our uh, students at Columbia. Let's get every student to at least give enough for a bed net. So as many bed nets coming from Columbia as there are students in the student body. Get involved with your church, synagogue, community group, student group. You know, any benefit you're going to do, do something that can add to this. Millennium Promise is one place where you have a very safe way to make sure the whole thing goes right to villagers that need it. And there are others. But I do think that everybody can do something and should do something. Not everybody has to spend all their time on it. But I'll tell you, it's interesting to do. I do recommend it. But if you don't want to do that because there are a million other absolutely fabulous things to do with one's lives, do something, though. Just because we're so interconnected in the world, we got to understand we have to help others if we're going to remain safe ourselves. One more question. Um, you had that last slide, or a couple slides back, that said $70 would per person would fix this stuff and how little we're actually getting out there. Is that just NGOs, or is that just no. governmental spending, or is that governmental and NGO? Yeah, the amazing thing is uh, those data are uh, official development aid. That's the government. 
But okay. it's surprising that uh, that's the big, big majority of, of the picture. There are lots of wonderful organizations doing things, but they don't add up to the kind of the big ticket items that government can do. Now, maybe that can be reversed. We're starting to see mega philanthropy coming. Yeah. We have uh, $25 billion from Bill Gates. We have uh, $30 billion from Warren Buffett. Actually, Bill is probably up to 30 at this point also. Uh, we have big contributions from other very wealthy people. We got a lot of wealthy people in the world, almost 800 billionaires now, and many of them want to do big things. And we have us. And between us, we got a lot too. So maybe we can do it more private than public. And I'm reaching that conclusion not to give up on pounding on the politicians to do more, but on at least, at least let's not wait for them. Yeah. And let's do our part, see how far we get. Maybe we don't need them at all. That'd be the best. <laughs> That'd be the easiest. Okay, I think we can have time for one more. I wanted to uh, bring up a point that has to do with the... Um, green revolution or lack of a green revolution in Africa. Uh, aside from the uh, factor you mentioned in connection with malaria that the poor just get less attention, to what extent does this have to do with the fact that African agriculture tends to rely on different crops from those on which the major green revolution innovations have been based? And uh, also in connection with this, I want to I ask about something that concerns me every time I hear it mentioned on the television. The current push to, to use uh, food crops like corn to produce ethanol, uh, what implications do you see that having for the attempt to achieve food sufficiency in places where that's still a problem? Boy, two, two great questions. So the next two hours of the discussion begin. Um, <laughs> In the original Green Revolution, it was based largely on Japanese and U.S. technology. So the early crops that benefited were wheat and rice. And those were the two initial crops. And it's probably the case that Africa could not have had a Green Revolution in the 60s and 70s because the improved germplasms weren't really even developed at that point. By the 80s onward, though, Enough work had been done in the international agriculture research units and in the national agriculture research units to produce improved germplasms, that is, improved seeds that would be locally applicable. So we do now have a lot of good, improved, high-yield seed varieties that could be used but aren't being used. And even when you have the good seeds, they're not multiplied to much scale because there aren't the private buyers of them right now. Yet, there's also new science that's needed, definitely. And as I mentioned, Monsanto is developing drought-resistant varieties, which I think are extremely promising. And the Gates and Rockefeller Foundations recently announced a $150 million alliance to promote high-yield seeds with new science as well. So, as always with all of this, we have tools at hand and even better tools to come if we, make, uh, if we make the investment. You raise a second question, which is very big, and I can't actually give you a quantified answer because no one can, but biofuels probably are not the scaled solution for our, in, our uh, 
carbon dioxide fossil fuel problem because we would run out of land, actually. And we don't want to cut down the remaining rainforest to open up land for uh, biofuel production, but we could actually do that in a kind of uh, neglectful way. Photosynthesis just probably is not efficient enough in transforming sunlight into fuel to compete with fossil fuels. That's the basic underlying thermodynamic and chemical point. We're going to be needing fossil fuels for a long time to come. But if we use them the way we're using them right now, we're going to wreck the climate and wreck the planet. So we have to figure out how to use fossil fuels in a safe way. And the prevailing idea is to capture and sequester the carbon from our coal-fired and oil and gas-fired power plants as a way to have our fossil fuel and use it safely environmentally. Biofuels probably can't be the real solution for the climate change issue. I have to tell you a secret, though. I started with it, so it's not such a secret. If we climb the summit of ending extreme poverty, and quite an arduous climb it's going to be, as soon as your generation gets up to the top of that summit, you're going to see another huge mountain ahead. And it's going to be the mountain of environmental sustainability. It ain't over by solving extreme poverty. We don't know yet how to make even our well-being sustainable because we're putting such stress on the ecosystems. I didn't promise you an easy course. It's pretty tough. We need the best minds to solve these problems. That would be you. Thanks. I'd like to take this opportunity, Dr. Zacks, for being with us today, and on behalf of the Undergraduate uh, Admissions Office and First Year Experience Office, as well as the Mershon Center for International Studies and Securities, uh, we'd like to present you with this gift. Wonderful. Yep. A show of our A appreciation. Book. I love books. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.